Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Step right up and prepare to be unsettled. You have left behind your safe reality and fallen into darkness. There is no escape. There is no reprieve. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. I'm GM Danielson, your guide through these twisted worlds of the most disturbed imaginations. Join us as we take a journey toward the malevolent. Follow me for the first of our frightening visions. The world is littered with sights forgotten by the constantly forward-moving society. A plethora of unattended former industrial areas, long-shattered hospitals, and abandoned housing facilities has birthed a subcultural adventure spot that takes advantage of these forbidding places. Urban exploration seeks the thrill of the unknown in the forgotten. But sometimes, what lurks in the darkness may be best left forgotten. Evil waits hidden and hungry. Benjamin Lisman explores fear with Nate Hawkins and Brendan McNair in Cosmos McCoy's The Distillery Incident. November 4th. 2013. Detective Bruce Gravinsky. Case number 733. Distillery Incident. Excerpts from phone audio files recovered at site. Excerpt 1. 
Well, it looks like this is it. I've closed myself in here. In this. Where am I? Oh, a storage container of some kind. It's massive. I've shut the hatch and wound it tight. <laughs> Try to get me now. I've still got some battery power left in my phone. I'm gonna call the police before this is over. First though, I'm gonna leave a little something for them to listen to before I die. Oh boy, oh my legs, oh, this feels good. But now I'm trapped in here. Well, what do you expect, Damon? Oh, God. End of first excerpt. Begin second excerpt. Okay, I think they're gone. Now I can begin my story. Listen, you're going to wonder why some kids decided to climb into this distillery. I'm wondering the wisdom of that myself. You ever hear of urban exploration? Maybe, maybe not. I'll give you some background. Things in America, they get abandoned and everyone forgets about them. Well, urban explorers are the people who remember these places and decide they want to have a look. I learned about it from my friend Jacob Nazaki. He's a good guy. Wait. Was. He was a good guy. <sighs> Damn it. What were we thinking? I'm gonna die here. End of second excerpt. Begin third excerpt. Right. My story. Okay. So. Man. It's dark in here. I can't see anything but the light off my phone. It's rusty. It smells like ammonia. <laughs> that might be the thing that kills me. Good. Okay. So we decided it would be a brilliant idea to visit the old Oakfield Distillery. We're all in college, right? We planned for a day and decided what did we have to lose. So Jacob and I grabbed a couple friends who were interested. I'll give you the names so you can identify the bodies. If you find them. The first, Natasha Witt. She's the one wearing the plaid skirt and red scarf. I'm just gonna say it. I've had a crush on her since I saw her on campus. <laughs> Never did have the guts to ask her out, though. <clears throat> Get a grip. Get a grip, Damon. But hey, I did ask her along to this. I thought you'd like it. <laughs> big mistake. Big, big, colossal mistake. Is what happened to her on me? Too bad Jacob's not around. He's the Catholic one. I'm sure he could have given me absolution or something. The second, Jacob Nazaki. He's got that stupid hoodie zipped up over a black t-shirt. My best friend. I met him in college as well. Good guy. Honest. Pretty sure he's dead now. 
dead. Is that what you call them? <laughs> don't think about it. 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 No. End of third excerpt. Begin fourth excerpt. Sorry, Damon had to get a grip. I'm pretty sure I fell asleep. Can you believe that? I slept. I dreamt nightmares. My phone's telling me it's nighttime, like 11 or midnight or something. They're still out there. I can hear them. I can't get away from here. Anyway, I told you about Natasha and Jacob. That leaves Jesse and Brick. Jesse's the third, Jesse McLeary. Nice girl. Always thought Jacob had a thing for her. Jesse's wearing that weird looking hat thing on her head. You know, the huge artsy thing, the big plushy hat thing? Forget it. I'm pretty sure she has a fancy dark jacket on her as well. As for Brick, I guess I should say that Brick's not his real name. That's just what we call him. Brick's real name is Thomas B. Rick. Get where Brick comes from? You get it? Anyway, he wore this afro thing with his hair. I'm not sure if it's a true afro, and we used to get in arguments about it, because I said curls don't make an afro, and he disagreed. Whatever. There you have it. Four bodies. Oh, right. I'll make the fifth. As for myself, I dig tweed jackets. When you find me, I'll be wearing one. It's my favorite jacket. Kind of sad, isn't it? You can put that in my obituary. That I starved to death in my favorite jacket. Oh, God. What do they want? What do they want from me? Do they want to turn me into them? No. No, I will not become one of them. I won't. No. It's, it's funny. But it almost feels as if there's a noose tightening around my neck. And they're just waiting to pull it taut. Okay, that was further off. I think they're looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for me! Looking for me! Looking for me! Looking for Damon! Get a grip, damn it! I think I'm losing it. But that in my hope as well. Damon lost his sanity while sitting in an abandoned container the size of his house. <laughs> I've, I've, got, I've, I've got to tell the story. I'm not going to lose it before that. Okay, so today, or yesterday, or whatever, Jacob, myself, and the others came driving into this place. We parked our car a good distance away in an empty parking lot across from that ugly-looking elementary school. St. John's, was it? That's where you'll find the car if you find my body, if you find the phone. That's a lot of ifs, Damon. I know. We'd planned this pretty far in advance. And today, yesterday, was the big day. 
Jacob had done some research, looking at some urban exploration sites or whatever. The distillery seemed like the coolest option, so we all agreed to come here. It was about an hour and a half drive from the campus, and the ride up was kind of crammed, but hey, I, I got squished up against Natasha. Trust me, I, I didn't mind that. Anyway, we had a great time on the drive. I didn't know Jesse and Natasha were so funny. I was glad to have them along, and they seemed excited as well. We parked and made our way to the place. I love, well, loved, urban exploring. I'm pretty sure I can say loved because it will be past tense by the time anyone finds this. Whatever. English major. <laughs> what good's that degree going to do me anyway? Urban exploring. There's something to it, you know? There's just something so exhilarating at approaching something that everyone else has abandoned. There's a thrill to seeing what's in the darkness. My first time was when Jacob and I explored an abandoned sawmill. It was pretty cool seeing what they used to do. The machinery that was just left lying there. It's amazing. I don't know quite how to explain it. The distillery seemed like the perfect place to come. A distillery, think about it, where they used to brew beer. And they just abandoned it in the 80s for no reason. No reason at all. Well, now I think I know the reason. That's coming later. When I can face it. So we hop the single chain hanging across the gravel road leading into the place. A single chain, by the way, not a barbed wire fence. You figure when they abandon these things, they try to put up some hardcore security measures in place so that urban explorers or rowdy Greek Epsilon pledge nonsense doesn't go down inside. We're not here. We just waltzed right in. <laughs> waltzed. I always wanted to waltz. <sighs> I could have waltzed with Natasha. End of fourth excerpt. Begin fifth excerpt. Well, it was great at first. The Oakfield Distillery boasted one of the biggest compounds on the East Coast. Well, it was! We spent the first 15 minutes trying to figure out how to get into one of the biggest buildings. The people in charge of caring for the property the distillery rests on now blocked up the entrances with some heavy-duty wooden pallets, but we were able to squeeze through some slats that had been left unattended. And just like that, we were inside. And it was dark, like now. <sighs> it's cold in here. Jacob and I had thought ahead and brought some flashlights along. Jesse and Natasha were slightly nervous now, I could tell, but they weren't complaining at all. They seemed to feel better when we handed them our extra flashlights. Now let me tell you how big this place was. You could literally shine your light in one direction and hit nothing but darkness. It must have been the size of four or five football fields. I hate football. It was huge. And completely untouched. I mean completely. It looked like people had just up and left for no reason at all. Now, I've been to several places urban exploring. Kids get to it and they graffiti it all up and generally ruin all the magic. They'll steal things, they'll break things, they'll ruin it for the rest of us. Now, Jacob and I live by a code. Sure, we're 
probably trespassing. Strike that. You're definitely trespassing. What are you going to do? You attack that on my obit, officer who's listening to this. Damon was trespassing on private property. Whatever. But we still live by a code of exploration. We won't deface property. And we leave things exactly as we find them. That's how we roll. Rolled, rather. There won't be much rolling anymore, huh? We had to smack Brick around a little before he would give up a shipping manifest he'd stuffed into his jacket. Moron. Anyway, for the first hour it was pure exploration. We saw break rooms, huge distillers, several large chemical rooms, offices that overlooked the giant area above everyone. The strange thing was, vending machines still had food and drinks inside them. Break rooms still had food in the refrigerators. Beer bottles were on the assembly line. There wasn't any graffiti. Nothing was broken. Jacob and I thought it was cool, but Natasha told me that it was creepy. I can still remember her voice. Natasha wasn't perfect by a long shot, but her eyes were dark. Her hands were smooth. And you know what? She loved video games. Any girl that loves video games wins in my book. Now she's outside, looking for me. Looking for me. Looking for me. <clears throat> Things got weirder when we got into the second biggest building. It was a bitch to get into. We had to let Jacob scale a wall to climb through an open window and unlock the first door for us. When we entered, it was about as dark as the first building. Jessie told us she thought we were being watched. You know... Thinking back on it, I could kind of feel it too. But Jacob and I reassured her it was just the atmosphere of the abandoned place. Still, as we got deeper into the place, Natasha told us the same thing. I'd heard some creaks and those rumbles in the distance. But you chalked that up to wind. It had been a cloudy day when we entered the place. Maybe it was raining. Brick was saying some patronizing bull to the girls when... Jacob hushed all of us. Somewhere in the building, there came a low-pitched wail. Something I can only describe as God moaning. We stopped in our tracks. Time to go, I remember Natasha saying. Now I was thinking that it was some drunk, homeless guy. But nonetheless, I didn't want to traumatize my crush, so I was inclined to escort her out of the building. Jacob was nervous now, too, so we turned tail and made for the door. Before we could leave, we realized Brick was missing. I called out for him, but there was no answer. Jacob and the girls chimed in, but there was absolutely no response. Our voices only echoed through the walls. We were getting scared now, and we didn't know what to do. Would you, officer? Here's... Probably where you'll stop believing what I'm saying and do the same thing any other logical, sane person with full access to their reason would do. Deny it. Why believe what doesn't make sense? Well, we decided to look for Brick. Natasha and Jesse had more courage than I thought. They weren't about to let Brick disappear. I'm pretty sure I fell in love there. We went back to the spot we'd been... It was on the third floor of one of the massive buildings I can't even begin to guess the nature of. 
had a large elevator in the center of it, and we assumed Brick would still be up there, but we couldn't find him. For the life of us, no matter how much we called, we couldn't find him. Not a single trace. Until we heard his voice. We thought it was his voice. It was coming from the elevator shaft. We peeked our heads down and shined our lights, but we couldn't make him out. Jesse and Jacob called and called, but the voice was gone. So we took the stairs, rusted and groaning under our weight, back down to the very bottom floor, below ground level. It was cold down there. So cold. Brick was waiting for us. But I'm not sure it was Brick. Something was wrong. I could immediately tell we were so relieved to have found him, I ignored it. He was standing there, staring at us as we gave him a big group hug. And then he started talking about how he found something he wanted us to see. That's why he disappeared. He started walking away towards two large metal doors at the far end of the building. Jacob and the girls followed him, myself in tow. Now look, I'm not sure why we wanted to see what Brick wanted to show us. But I guess we figured it had to be good if he ditched us to see it. Of course, I had to get thirsty right there. I was fumbling with my water bottle and I dropped it to the floor. As I bent to pick it up, I heard Brick thrust the doors open, and when I stood, they were all gone. All of them. Gone. Just plain gone. The doors were wide open, and there was nothing but a brick-and-mortar wall beyond. They were literally doors to nothing. End of fifth excerpt. Begin sixth excerpt. Were they sealed? Maybe that was it. Like the wall sealed up something beyond it. Something awful. There aren't just rooms to nothing. But since when did people just disappear into rooms that lead to nothing? Whatever you do, officer, do not head down there. If you see those doors, turn the opposite direction and run. Run as fast as you can to your squad car and drive away. I didn't. And that was my other big mistake. I started looking for called out for them. I shouted as loud as I could. I shouted until I was hoarse. Nothing. They were gone, and I thought it was a joke. Some cruel joke that I wasn't privy to. I thought they were going to jump out and scare me. But it wasn't possible. The bottom floor was bare of almost anything. A few pallets sat unused by a garage door that must have led to the ground floor. But other than that, there was nothing. No place for them to hide to jump out to scare me. I inspected those doors. They were unremarkable. Just big metal doors designed to store things in the cold, I guess. I checked the bricks. And that's when I froze. Behind the wall, I heard breathing. Not kidding, just breathing. Normal breathing. But not just one person breathing. There were people behind those bricks. Several people. I tried calling to them, 
thinking that that was where Jacob and Natasha and the others were. But they gave me no indication. I pounded on the wall, nothing. And then the breathing stopped. And I heard my name being called. I turned around and nothing. Someone was calling me from outside. Panic hadn't set in yet, and I still thought that they were just trying to scare me. So I climbed back up the rusty steps to the ground floor. I walked out of the building and started hunting for the caller. My name echoed off of the several empty distillery buildings, and I spent like 15 minutes searching. I realized now that I was being led deeper into the complex. But I was outside, so I felt safe. I knew where the car was and where we entered. And then I saw them. All four of them were facing away from me, calling my name. I was elated, but I stopped in my tracks about ten feet from where they were standing. Something wasn't right, and this time I listened to my gut. Guys, I said, it isn't funny. Can we go now? You see, they were standing a foot away from one of the smaller buildings, calling my name. Damon. 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 They were facing the building like children in a timeout. They weren't looking towards me, not towards any other part of the complex. Who does that? And then they turned around, and I screamed. Look, I can't say exactly what it is I saw, and you probably don't believe me anyway, but their faces. It was as if someone had taken a turpentine cloth to an oil painting and smudged out the details of their faces. It was all a blur. Their mouths were too big, their eyes weren't even there. Natasha, Jacob, Brick, and Jesse, they weren't themselves anymore, and they let out that same wail, that ungodly deep wail. Then, almost as if on cue, they started hovering right off the ground. I mean, their feet did not touch the ground. They were airborne, making that awful sound. I did what any sane person would do. I turned and ran. I ran and ran and ran all over the complex. Why didn't I go back to the car, you ask? Well, every time I made a move towards the exit, those things walked away. Not just my friends, others as well. People I didn't recognize. Some wearing blue jumpsuits, some white shirts and ties, but they were all wailing. I think they may have worked here, but I didn't think about that as I ran. I can't escape. I've tried. I tried so hard. Why would I thought to call you yet, officer? Because if I die, there will be no explanation as to why I died. Besides, was to say that you won't die yourself.
That's close. I climbed into here after about two hours worth of cat and mouse. I'm pretty sure those sadistic things are playing with me. Why not? They've got me on a silver platter. Maybe those things are the reason this place closed down. I don't know. I never will. So that's my story. I have to end it here. Maybe there's a chance I'll still survive. <laughs> Fat chance. I, uh, I think I can make the 911 call now. If I die, please believe me. You've got to close this place off for good. Don't let it happen to anyone else. I'm going to go now. It seems so strange to die here. I think I'll have a big funeral. My name is Damon Hackman. End of audio recordings. Begin recorded 911 call. Nine one one emergency response. I need help. I'm at the Oakfield Distillery. I'm in trouble. There's Sir, what kind of trouble? Sir? The hangmen are here. I knew this was it. The Oakfield Distillery. Help! Help! Sir? Sir? <laughs> to your location. Can you stay on the line? End of 911 call. Detective Bruce Gravinsky's personal note. Phone was found within old distillery container with one bar of battery left. The container had been pulled open with more force than an industrial crane could generate. Suggest sealing off Oakfield Distillery until further investigation. Think found footage is frightening? Well, our discovered sonic evidence experiences have taught you that. What might look frightening on film can scare you to death in our patented psycho audio color. 
Copyright 2017 Chilling Entertainment LLC When we return, if your spines will allow it, we will venture deeper into the Hadean darkness. Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. Become a patron today and you'll get the extended version of this show. Here's a sample of the extra stories you get when you become a member. It was this moment that I caught him, and the two of us entered that horrid place. The door swung closed behind us. She smiled at me. Shouldn't you be home? (laughs) The thing reappeared. Its eye and part of the mouth peeked out from behind Pris, boring into me. Become a member today. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash tour to get more horror than you can handle. And now we continue your aversion therapy. Years ago, a tragedy unfolded leaving few survivors. Now eight men travel into the wilderness ignorant of that tragedy. But in the isolated countryside, what awaits them seethes with a burning hatred. Follow along as Josh Irish gives a fiery performance along with the Simply Scary podcast players in Cosmos McCoy's And They Burn. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The tent smelled. It wasn't anybody's fault, just one of the many consequences of being unable to shower, coupled with the rancid garments. For three days, the stench steadily increased, showed no signs of stopping. It was Wednesday, thank God, but they couldn't leave until Saturday, a full two days away. Connolly shifted in his sleeping bag, trying to find a comfortable position. It didn't seem like much, but two days meant another 48 hours. Most of those were going to be filled with work. It meant that he was going to have to climb that mountain two more times. 
He took a breath and released it. The tent smelled, but Connolly was used to it at this point. Debbie rustled next to him, heavy breathing, out like a light. Connolly rolled his eyes. His sleeping bag warmed him, but soon enough it twisted around his legs like a cocoon. He tried to fix his jacket, which acted as a makeshift pillow underneath his head, mentally yelling at himself for not thinking of what he'd need to rest his head on at night. They were told what to bring before they hiked in, two months earlier. They were given a list of things they needed to buy beforehand, so that nobody would be left without an essential. Unfortunately, pillows had slipped the list. Connolly didn't mind a good hike now and then, and the time he spent in the scouts had helped, but nothing could have prepared him for this. Each man brought a hiking backpack, filled to the brim with everything they would need. A couple of shirts, a pair of work pants, their sleeping bags, and canteens. Connolly heard whispers across the campsite, sound of a zipper, footsteps crunching on old dead leaves and dried trees, then urinating. <sighs> trail maintenance. All this for trail maintenance. Mark had tried to comfort him over a few beers. Someone's gotta do it. Oh, come on, Connolly. You always said you wanted to go to California. Connolly groaned inwardly at the memory. Where are we gonna be? Um, the Ansel Adams Wilderness. Trails through that part really need our love. He remembered how Devi, too, had encouraged him. Come on, it'll be fun. Connolly hadn't needed much convincing, or maybe the beer was talking. Either way, he agreed and stuck to his word. The three of them loved being outside anyway. This trip was in the works for six months. Mark had contacted someone who knew the wilderness very well and organized trips like these. His name was Terence, and he put them together with one other group, who happened to be interested. The urination stopped. Footsteps crunched across the campsite so loud it sounded like a Neanderthal could have been dragging his club. Then Connolly heard the sounds of synthetic fabric being ruffled, followed by a zipper. Then, blessedly, silence. It was probably Cope. They had flown out to California in the middle of August and drove out to a cabin owned by Terrence. Connolly, Devi, and Mark were the last to arrive. Terrence, a weather-beaten, bearded man, met them and introduced Culp, Phil, and Jack. Phil and Jack hit it off with the three latecomers easily, but Culp, at least to Connolly, was a dick. The man had all the answers, he knew the secrets to living, and it was all in nature. And he would not shut up. The hike-in was nauseating. After driving up for about two hours, the road ended and they climbed for another six. At first, Connolly was amazed at how beautiful the site was. Gigantic pines stretched at least 40 feet into the sky. Pine cones the size of soccer balls sat in the trail. Smoke from the far distant forest fires curled into the blue, cloudless skies. But what hit him hardest was the silence. He hadn't noticed it right away. The fires had driven off birds and all kinds, and the only two sounds were the wind and their footsteps. It was uncanny. After a while, the backpack grew heavy, and each step felt as though he had a steel ball attached to it. 
Connolly never knew you could be so tired. He had never been as happy as when they reached their campsite. Nearly 10,000 feet up, he was exhausted, out of breath. Terence set them up against the faces of two giant rock walls, and they set up their tents for the week. A cook had already carried gear into the site on mules, complete with a propane-fueled grill and a couple of storage containers. They gathered water from a small pond and used gravity-fed filters to clear out the water of anything harmful. The forest wardens had put out a fire ban two weeks earlier, so they had no fire that night or any other night. Still, the cook, a thin, ugly guy named Hank, cooked them all one hell of a steak that evening. Connolly closed his eyes, and his weariness finally overcame him like a wave. He had never heard of trail maintenance before, but when Devi explained it, he wasn't too surprised. People in California love their hiking and camping, so the rednecks take their horses and ride all over. The trails get screwed up and it isn't safe, especially on horseback. So what we'll be doing is making crooked ways straight, narrow ways wider. Seems simple enough. It wasn't. When they woke from the camp on the first morning, Hank cooked them a breakfast of powdered scrambled eggs and bacon from his icebox, complete with coffee. It was one of the best meals Connolly had ever eaten. After that, though, they climbed up another half hour or so up another mountainside on trails that had already been fixed. It was a grueling climb, nearly straight up. Sun rose as they walked, with not a cloud in the sky to stop its heat from bearing down on them. At the top, Terence removed all the tools from the camouflage tarp and they began their day's work. Together, the seven men hauled rocks, cleared out areas to put those rocks, and practically built stairways out of rocks. Connolly groaned in exertion. Oh, I'll never want to see another rock after this! They worked on a stretch of trail, about 200 yards long in two groups, hacking at the earth with pickaxes, shovels, and giant metal bars used to move boulders to and fro. Jack, Culp, and Phil were up higher on the trail, while Devi, Mark, and Connolly worked separately. Terence was the most experienced out of all of them, and he could move back and forth between groups, helping out when he could. It's character building. You'll have some stories to tell after this. His hands were grizzled from years of this kind of work, and veins bulged in his arms as he pulled up rocks heavier than all seven men combined. He wasn't a big man, not by a long shot, but his muscles could probably break bone. Connolly liked the man. He was smart, but not overbearing. He let the group figure out their own on how to get a rock the size of a car to move out of the way. After two days, however, Connolly had had enough, and there was nothing he could do about it. He was stuck up there. There was no bathrooms, no water fountains, and no air. This high up, Connolly had trouble breathing because of the oxygen being so thin. Their bathrooms consisted of the forest. You picked a tree somewhere off the trail and just let go. They also had dug a latrine about a hundred yards away from the camp in which they could take a dump. Connolly was disgusted at first, but he got used to it pretty quick. His arms were coated in dust after the first day, and even though they were far enough away, the air smelled like smoke. The entire group shared the fear of forest fires, but 
Hank and Terrence kept in regular communication with the forest wardens, who had an outpost about seven miles from them. To communicate, they used heavy-duty radios with a giant antenna. The volume was pretty loud, so when there was a transmission, everyone in the camp heard it. Currently, there was a fire about 40 miles south of them, and Terrence would occasionally ask the warden for updates. The two of them would share a joke, but Connolly would listen intently for what the details were. He almost hoped the fire was coming for them if it meant getting off the mountain, but his hopes were dashed. The warden reported each day that the wind was blowing the fire in the opposite direction. They were safe. The sun was setting on Thursday as they trudged down the hill. When they got back to camp, Connolly sat on a log next to their dormant and unused campfire. He immediately felt relief in his legs. Their tents all sat in a circle around the campfire, and there were five tents in total. Debbie and Connolly shared. Mark and Jack shared. Culp and Phil shared. Splitting up the tents, components made it easier to carry up the mountain, since they were stronger. Terence and Hank had their own tents. Connolly rested his back next to his legs and caught his breath. Devi, just as tired, sat next to him, sensing Connolly's anger. He smiled and put an arm around his shoulder. Two more days, but... Well, not even that. More like one and a half days. Connolly didn't have to force a smile. For a moment, his anger was gone and he could believe that they were almost done. Felt good. They had done a lot that day, clearing up and laying 25 yards of trail. Sitting opposite to them, Culp rolled his eyes in disapproval. It's still two days. You forget today is not done yet. Mark rolled his eyes. Oh, thanks for pointing that out, Culp. You benefited the entire community. In fact, I feel like a better man knowing it's only going to be two more days. I don't even know why you want to leave so bad. It's amazing out here. Better than the most extravagant city. Oh, you should be a poet. I've dabbled. I've got a poem. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Poems are trash, so fuck- <clears throat> Boys, that's not the way to get along on the team. Terrence cut him off, coming out of his tent and directing his question towards Hank. What's on the menu? Chicken noodle soup. We're near our supply limit, but- I've still got enough for tonight and tomorrow. Breakfast Saturday's gonna be skimpy. <laughs> Just what I like to hear. Say again, Station? You there, Station? There's another burst of static, and nothing. Terence replaced the receiver. His brow furrowed. Connolly noticed Hank glanced over towards the radio, but he shrugged his shoulders after a moment. Their campsite was surrounded by 50-foot-high trees. Though Connolly noticed when they first arrived that most of the trees were burned, when asked, Terence said it was due to the fires that had raged through some years prior. They had killed all the underbush and fried most of the lower branches of the trees, but because they were so tall, they survived. Now some young pines had sprung up and bushes had grown back, but the area was littered, only with fallen leaves and some grasses. That night they munched on salad, chicken noodle soup, and bread, followed by chewy bars for their dessert. If anything, 
Connolly had come to appreciate simple food more. The work on the mountain left him so bereft of energy and so hungry that he could have eaten the most disgusting of meals and thought it was a feast. They sat around the unlit campfire, the only light from headlamps that Terence had brought with him. They'd taken off their boots and were dressed in more comfy clothes. The only sound in the woods came from their camp. They joked and laughed, glad they were off the mountains with full bellies. Feeling the call of nature, Connolly rose from the group and made his way off behind a cluster of small pines. The greenness had faded to black, dark silhouettes against the pale moon above. When he was finished, Connolly began his short trek back, and he noticed that Terence and Hank were talking quietly to themselves. They stood a ways off from the campsite, but in the darkness, Connolly could still notice the urgent hand motions that Terence was using. As it got closer, he could make out some of what they were saying. You know it's not like Sally to buzz us and then say nothing. It ain't like radio static don't happen. It was probably nothing. You heard it as well as I did. It was obviously a buzz. I had the sizzling of the grill in my ears. I don't know what I heard. I think we should leave. It's just too similar. Like when... Oh, Conley. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't see you there. Everything okay? Terence nodded. I think so. It's just some strangeness with Sally at the station. That's nothing to worry about. Suddenly, another burst from the radio snapped Terence's head around. He ran across through the campsite, leaves and sticks crunching under his feet. You sure everything's okay? Connolly was beginning to think that everything was not okay. Even in the dark, Hank's ugly face had paled. Say again, station. The camp's talking ceased when the others noticed his bolt to the radio, and they watched silently. They could see his hands shaking in the light cast from their headlamps. I said, say again, station. Mark stood up as Connolly came back to the unlit campfire, his eyes still focused on Terrence. What's happening? I don't know. Station, do you read me? They're probably not home. Right, because Force Warrens are great at leaving their post unmanned. Moron. Station, are you there? Sally? Oh, right, because you're an expert, eh? My brother's a Force Warden. Who invited you anyway? Phil and Jack shrugged. I repeat, Sally, can you read me? Are you listening, Sally? You know, your attitude this week has really been driving me up the wall. My attitude? Who was it that gave up on moving to Boulder today? I'm curious. Wait, who was it? You know, it was a... Another burst of static shut the argument up. Everything was quiet for a beat. Terence breathed in heavily, and a sweat glistened in the light. Then Mark turned to Hank. What's the problem? Hank looked over the group, fear plain in his eyes. I think you should grab what you can carry and get ready to leave. <laughs> what? Why? Just do it. Grab some water, grab some food, and grab your boots. The radio burst in a static which carried across the entire camp. 
They all heard a single, small voice cut through the static, whimpering. Terence whirled from the radio console, his face an expression of terror. All right, we need to go! Now! Everyone sprung from their spots and made for the tents. They fought with their backpacks for things they would need, grabbed their boots and putting them on quickly. Connolly could hear his heart pounding in his ears, and everything seemed to be in sharp focus. He no longer cared what Terence was doing. He just fit his boots onto his feet and tied the strings tightly. The voice sounded like that of a child, but it was the anguish and hopeless tone that scared him the most. Whoever that voice belonged to, they were dead or dying. <laughs> he felt a hand on his shoulder and he screamed. It was Terence. He was pale and distraught, his face contorted and eyes wide. In his hands was a water bottle. You'll need this. They were ready to go in less than five minutes, which was about as long as Culp could stay quiet. Somebody want to fill us in? On the way! Terence turned, and they made their way for the trail down as he started speaking. That was twelve years ago. And we had a large group back then, and plenty of hands to go around. There were so many of us that we could split up in the groups that spanned for miles around. We kept in contact with them easily enough. Same way we do now, only the technology wasn't as good. It was a Saturday. I remember it clear enough. We all heard some strange sounds from the radio that day. Then, one of our groups reported that smoke was rolling into their camp, which made no sense, considering there weren't no fires around. Next thing we know, we hear screams from the receiver. Hank and I made our way for the camp. Only two people had made it out. The rest were gone. All five of them, just gone. No trace. We never found their bodies. To this day, we still don't know what happened. When we asked the two survivors what happened, they told us two things. Before the smoke rolled in, they heard one voice on the radio. It was the voice of a child sounding like it was burning alive. The second is that they survived because they were resting in the tents. They wouldn't tell us anything after that. Where did that come from? Down there, I think. Oh God, is that smoke? Connolly's heart skipped a beat. Light from their headlamps illuminated a dim, black smoke as it crept up the hill. The pale moon above could not penetrate the darkness. Terence turned around. Back to camp! They all sprinted back up the hill. Connolly felt sluggish. His thighs burned with the exertion as they plowed up the slope. But he kept pace with everyone. He did not want to get in the smoke. Soon the campsite came into view, their tents illuminated by the headlamps. When Connolly turned around, he gasped. The smoke was nearly on top of them. He stumbled backward, falling onto their unused campfire. He scrambled, kicking as hard as he could with his legs. He gripped dirt and rocks in his hands, and he moved until he felt the synthetic fabric of the tent at his fingertips. He tore at the zipper frantically and climbed in. There's no one else with him. 
Everyone inside! All had made it into the tents as the smoke engulfed them. Now I'm not sure what's going to happen, but whatever you do, do not... Connolly couldn't make out the rest. Terence's voice was gone. There's nothing but the smoke. Connolly could smell it. But it didn't make him cough and it didn't penetrate the tent. He watched helplessly as the moon was blotted out. The only light came from Connolly's lamp. He aimed it outside through a little screen at the entrance. Though he couldn't see anything in the darkness, the smoke completely isolated Connolly. He surveyed the tent he had scrambled into. It wasn't his, but its vomit green color told him clearly it was Culp's. There was a snap of a twig outside, and then the approaching footsteps told Connolly that he wasn't alone. There were many of them, and they were loud, crunching through the dead foliage. But the way they shuffled through the dead leaves, the way they cracked over the dead tree branches, something told him it wasn't a rescue party. Not wanting to be spotted, Connolly turned out his light. Darkness, whole and entire, engulfed the tent. Connolly was plunged so deep that he couldn't see his hand or the outside. Footsteps stopped, then approached his tent. He could hear them getting closer, till they were right outside. He held his breath, pulling his legs tight up against him. The only thing separating him from whatever was out there was a thin piece of synthetic material made to stop rain. something grasp at the side of the tent. He heard coarse breathing and coughing. A woman screamed from somewhere else inside the camp. Then he heard another scream. It sounded like Culp. He heard footsteps bounding towards his tent. Something crashed into it. Let me in, man. There's something out here. Let me... Culp was pulled away with a scream, nearly taking the tent with him. Connolly flipped over in the tent and it collapsed on top of him. Connolly listened to Culp's helpless cries until they were finally muffled by the smoke. He pushed the tent upright. Culp had freed it from its supports, and one side hung downward. Connolly couldn't take the darkness anymore, and turned his light back on. That's when he saw the zipper to the door was slightly open. He tore across the tent, fighting through the frictionless fabric of the sleeping bag beneath his legs, until he grabbed the zipper in his fingers. Before he could zip it back up, a small charred hand reached through and grabbed his thumb and forefinger in a tight little grasp. Out of instinct, he looked through the screen of the door where the two eyes stared at him. They were innocent eyes, small like a child's. The smile underneath them was cruel and wide. Connolly screamed, 
His fingers burning. He couldn't tear them from the grasp. The eyes bore into him. Connolly pulled as hard as he could. The hand let go, and he flew backwards, but somehow he managed to zip up the door. Looking at his hand, his fingers were scorched black. The pain screamed in his head, and he rocked back and forth, cradling the burnt flesh in his hand. Connolly felt the burning rise up his arms, until it felt like his entire body was on fire. His mouth opened, but not even his voice broke through the pain. He collapsed on his back. Outside, the innocent eyes and cruel smile stared in at him. After several missed check-ins, Sally dispatched three forest wardens to the campsite to look for Terrence and his crew. Unfortunately, this was on the last of their list of things to do, and they arrived at sunset. What they found puzzled and unnerved them. The campsite was destroyed, tents strewn about, and cooking materials thrown to the wind. The grills sat on the side. The contents of his icebox were toppled, and there's no sign of a camper anywhere. At least that's what they thought. They looked through the tents for any signs of life. It was eerily quiet. First one they searched through was tossed aside. The door unzipped. No one was inside. It was the same with the second. When they checked Terrence's tent, their hearts sank. His tent was open as well, but he wasn't inside. His backpack was tossed on the ground, all of his clothes scattered at the foot of the tent. and one of the wardens heard the sound of whimpering. She followed it past the unused campfire and saw a tent upside down. Opening the door, she found a camper rocking back and forth, whispering something about burning. When she asked him what happened, he clung to her legs and wouldn't let go. Get me home. Get us off this mountain. That's when she saw that his thumb and forefinger were badly burned. The others joined her, reporting that the entire campsite was empty. They were unnerved, but soon it was put aside and focused on the injured man. After some coaxing, they got the burned man upon one of their horses. As they carried him down the mountain, one of the warden's walkie-talkies went off. The burst transmission of someone calling them. The wardens caught a single phrase before shrugging it off as some random signal. It looks like these crispy campers had more to worry about than the difference between flammable and inflammable. <laughs> but you've got to admit, when you're hot, you're hot. 
After this momentary break, we will finalize our excursion into evil. Well, howdy, folks. The other half here. You want this show to keep going. I know, I know. But we do that with your support. It ain't free, you know. So besides becoming a patron and a member at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com or Patreon.com slash ChillingTales, you might be asking, Hey, other half, how can I support your form of killer broadcasting? I ain't got no scratch. Well, we've come up with other ways to help us keep this show dead alive. When shopping with Amazon, use the link ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash Amazon or SimplyScaryPodcast.com forward slash Amazon and a portion of your purchases go to keeping this Frankenstein's monster pumping with voltage. So remember, use ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash Amazon and SimplyScaryPodcast.com forward slash Amazon when purchasing through there to help promote fan-funded entertainment like ours. Now... Back to the show. Remember, listeners, there are three ways to enjoy this show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for a sample single-story episode. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com for the two-story freemium version of the show, or visit chillingtalesfordarknights.com forward slash tour. Take the tour and become a patron today to enjoy the full-length four-story premium episode, plus access to many other frightening extras you certainly will find nowhere else. And remember to continue to keep this broadcast fan-funded through our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash chilling tales. And if monetary support escapes you, use our Amazon affiliate link when shopping with amazon.com by entering chillingtalesfordarknights.com forward slash Amazon in your address bar. Part of the proceeds of your purchase goes directly to funding your favorite home for horror. You can also use simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash Amazon the same way when you shop with Amazon. And as always, we humbly ask that you please allow the YouTube ads to play during our show and to occasionally click on those things to assert your viewership and solidify our ability to continue creating content that disturbs you. This is G.M. Danielson, thanking you for joining us. Find out more about Cosmos McCoy and his Cosmos of Chaos at our featured author's page on simplyscarypodcast.com and watch out for those small shadows in your peripheral. If they are more than just a figment, your next trip to the bathroom might literally scare... Well... You know what I mean. <laughs> TTFN, ta-ta for now. <laughs> Join us next time as we etch the ethereal into your paradigm, feast on your fears, and breathe life into your nightmares. For you are just experiencing 
The Simply Scary Podcast. This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment LLC 2017. Thanks for listening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.